0: Did you know that nearly 2 million Turning Point radio programs are broadcast each year? Your support enables Turning Point to continue delivering the unchanging Word of God to an ever-changing world. And thanks to our Giving Challenge, any fiscal year-end gift you give until the end of June will be doubled, up to $100,000. You can help Turning Point finish strong by donating today. Call 800-946-4300 or go to davidjeremiah.ca.
1: It's the central theme of many best selling novels and blockbuster movies. But what does the Bible say about revenge? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to his series on David, who had a golden opportunity to take revenge on the king who had chased him into hiding. Learn about David's surprising choice as Dr. Jeremiah shares today's message How to Treat Your Enemy.
2: I don't know if you've ever had someone who has treated you badly for a long time, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where he or she is at your disposal, and you can knock him out. You can get even for all that's been done. As a Christian, what do you do? We're going to see David in that very situation. He has Saul in the palm of his hand. He can take him out. But he will not touch the Lord's anointed. That's the story before us in How to Treat Your Enemy on this Friday edition of Turning Point. We're studying the life of David, the tender warrior, and uh, we're glad you've joined us. On Friday, I always tell you about going to church. I'm going to do it up front today, let you know that that's a real priority for us here at Turning Point. We tell everybody go to church. Uh, church takes uh, precedence over everything, including Turning Point. Go to church. Make yourself available to the Lord. God works through the church, and he wants to work through you. He wants you to be a part of an assembly where you are using your gifts to make a difference. Turning Point's here to encourage you every day, add fuel to your fire. But we can't be at the church for you. You have to be there. And this week is a great time for you to go. I hope you'll be there. Tell your pastor I sent you. He'll be blessed. And now uh, let me remind you that uh, you need to be ordering this resource for the month if you plan to get it because we'll soon be out of opportunity to tell you about The Focused Life, Psalms and Proverbs bound together in one beautiful leather-covered volume uh, prepared for you to read those two books together in a month. And it's a beautiful thing to have, and it's a wonderful experience for your life. If you've never done this before, let us help you do it with this resource. When you send a gift of any size to Turning Point, ask us for The Focused Life, and we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. All right, here we go. This is How to Treat Your Enemy, Part 1.
3: You must admit that we are living in a generation that seems to sense that all of its problems can be resolved through the courts and through challenging one another in lawsuits. So extensive is litigation in our society that it has now become what someone has described as America's favorite parlor game. The statistics bear this out. For I am told that there are 22,000 lawsuits filed every day in the United States. In terms of civil complaints, European nations have about 300 suits per 100,000 people. This can be compared to 5,000 suits for 100,000 people in our country. And of course, this does not include the disputes that are never taken to a lawyer or those taken to counsel where no complaint is filed. So extensive is our attempt to get revenge on each other when we feel we are wrong, that there has now grown up in our country a whole new culture called rent a judge. You can now go and find a judge, rent him for two days. He will help you solve your problem out of court, save all the waiting time, and he's a lot cheaper. Revenge can be a big business today. And revenge is something that most of us have to deal with at one time or another in our lives. How do we deal with life when we have been wronged? What do we do when people mistreat us? How do we respond? If we listen to the voices of the world around us, we will be no different than they are. God seems to have a different plan. And I want to explore that with you today as we examine David's treatment of Saul in his attempt to deal with his enemy. Now in order to get into the chapter, the 24th chapter, I need to remind you that in the 23rd chapter, David and Saul have had some minor skirmishes back and forth. Saul is continuing to hunt David as a fugitive because he is so jealous of David's popularity. But as you come to the end of the 23rd chapter word reaches Saul that the Philistines have started an uprising against the Israelites again and so Saul has to go back to the palace and regroup and bring his soldiers together to protect Israel from the Philistines. And the Bible says that when Saul went back to the palace David and his men went to a place called En Gede. Now David is still a fugitive, as I've already mentioned. He has known just about every indignity that a man could know from his enemy. To preserve his own life, for instance, David has had to feign insanity. He's lied to a priest. He's hidden himself in a cave. He's dodged arrows. He lost his wife. He is kept from a relationship with his best friend. He has had to hide his parents in Moab so they would be protected. And he has ended up with a band of marauders who were the off-scouring of the earth. And their number had grown from 400 to 600, and they have just spent an unlimited number of days in the cave of Adullam. Now David is hunted by Saul. It is an understatement to say that David has been hurt by all of this. If ever there was a man who had a right to vengeance and revenge, it was David. David, you see, was the anointed of the Lord. He was the one who was to succeed Saul on the throne of Israel. He had done nothing to deserve the treatment he had received from this evil man. He had been the one who had ministered to Saul on his harp. He had done Saul's dirty work in taking out Goliath. And in payment for that, he has now become the target of Saul's wrath. Saul is in the palace and David is in En Gede, which is about 600 feet above sea level. It is an area of rocky slopes filled with caves. In fact, the second verse of the 24th chapter describes it as the rocks of the wild goats. It was a place fit only for animals but if you happen to be a fugitive it was a welcome place because in that area up above sea level 600 feet there were many caves and places where a person could hide. The Bible says that Saul has now returned from his fight with the Philistines and has taken up his hunt of David again. It's overwhelming to see the intensity of Saul's anger. He has come after this one lone fugitive with 3,000 men. David has somewhere between four to 600 men. The Bible says that what happens in the next few moments of David's life is an illustration of what happens to us often when we are confronted with the opportunity to seek vengeance on our enemies. I want to ask you a question before we look at the rest of the text whoever it is that has wrongfully treated you, whatever it is they have done, however long ago it has been. What would you do today if you had in your hands absolute power to return evil to them in any way you wanted and you would not in any way be punished for it right now? All the circumstances are in your favor. You can do whatever you want to to that person. You will never have to hear about it again. What would you do? Well, I don't want some of you to be lost contemplating that. (laughs) But I want you to note that that's exactly what happened to David. And in order for us to get through this chapter together, I want to wrap the truth of the chapter around three very important principles. Principle number one, refuse Revenge, verses 1 through 8. Now, in order to tell the story, we have to understand what is going on with Saul. And I would like to suggest to you that under the principle refuse revenge, we need to put a sub principle that says this refuse revenge when circumstances seem to allow for it. Now, the story is one of those stories that you read about in seminary and you wonder. Whenever you preach that as a pastor, how will you explain this to a congregation without being embarrassed? I remember when I first read this and understood what it was talking about, I wondered at the time what I would say, how I would explain this to you, so you're about to find out. We are told that when Saul and his 3,000 men went to seek David, verse 2, upon the rocks of the wild goats, that he came to the sheepcoats by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. Now, that is a Hebrew euphemism. If you have a a marginal rendering, you might see this. He went into the cave to relieve himself. Now, there is no dignified way to say that. The best way I know to tell you what's going on is to say that in the caves of Engede, there were no port So Saul went to the nearest place he could to take care of the necessities of life. He heard the call of nature and he responded. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, why in the world is that in the Bible? Because the Bible is an honest book. And in order to tell the story, you have to find out how it is that Saul ends up in this cave. Now. Paint the picture any way you want to in your mind's eye, but notice when he gets into the cave, unknown to him, at the end of the third verse, Saul went in the cave to cover his feet, and David and his men were in the back of the cave. Now, the odds are changing. It's been 3,000 to 400, and now all of a sudden, Saul's in the cave by himself, He's in the front part of the cave and all of David and his men are in the back part of the cave surrounding Saul and they see Saul come in. You talk about being on candid camera. <laughs> Poor Saul. Now, David has the opportunity to get revenge on his enemy. And I want you to notice that the principle is refuse revenge. Number one, refuse revenge when circumstances seem to allow for it. If ever there was a time when David could have reasoned in his own mind, God has delivered him right into my hands. This is God doing this. I mean, the possibilities of Saul picking that cave at that time, why, they're, they're unbelievable. There were hundreds of caves in En Gede. And so David could have reasoned, this is it. This is what I've been praying for. God has set this thing up. This is my opportunity. Saul's a dead man. I'm going to get my revenge. Notice number two, sub-principle number two. Refuse revenge when counselors stand to advise it. Notice the fourth verse. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy unto thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall be good unto thee. In other words, all of the men gathered to David. and you can hear them whispering, David, this is it. This is the day. God did this. David, do it now. Take his life. Get this thing over with. We're tired of living in caves, David. I need to stop for just a moment and remind you of the nature of David's counselors. Would you turn back to the 22nd chapter for just a moment? And let me refresh your memory with this, that those who were counseling David according to the second verse were everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented. Those are David's counselors. And they're evil, wicked men. They see this as an opportunity to get Saul. And of course, if Saul's gone, David's elevated to the king. And they are already figuring out how they're going to fit into the plans. Isn't it interesting how they bring God into the picture? God set this up, David. You need to see that. God set this up. I feel sometimes a sense of sorrow for God. He's blamed for so many things he has nothing to do with. In fact, I would like to suggest to you that there is nothing more dangerous than ungodly men appealing to God in terms of counsel. Have you ever seen that? Men who don't know God at all, who have no concept at all of God, yet they get a hold of some godly truth, and they like to use God as a whipping boy for their own ideas, and they use the counsel of God without any spirit of God. They're a very dangerous breed. Yes, David could have reasoned that revenge that day had fallen into his own hands. These were tough men who knew that this chance might never come again, and they saw this as the opportunity for David to get even. They said, do it, David, do it. Well, David refused, but he compromised just a little. He would not kill Saul, and we'll understand in a few moments why he didn't do it. But he decided that while Saul was there, he would take advantage of the opportunity to demonstrate to Saul that he was a trustworthy friend. So I don't know exactly how this happened, but the Bible says that while, verse 4, David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately, Saul did not know anybody was in the cave. He was busy about his own business. And David got up next to him and took a knife and cut off the edge of Saul's robe and just took it and went back and never said a word. Saul didn't know it. Now, the interesting thing about that is after David did that, he was sorrowful. His conscience was smitten. It's a good testimony to the kind of sensitivity that was still in the heart of this young man. In fact, Verse 5 says, it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him. His conscience bothered him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. He knew that he shouldn't have done that. This was the Lord's anointed, and to treat him in such a way David knew was wrong. He had not taken full revenge. He surely hadn't killed him, but he had taken advantage just a bit of the opportunity. And however we may think about that, God is going to use that a bit later in David's life. But I'd just like to point out that David is a sensitive man, a man who has a heart for God. And even this incidental thing that he did, he felt bad about it afterwards. Now, before we go on to principle number two and look at the rest of this story, let me remind you that what David did in his refusal to take vengeance upon Saul was the right action for him to take. It may seem as if you have every right to get even. But my friend, if you are trying to get even, you are wrong from the very beginning. The Bible not only teaches us through the life of David that vengeance is wrong, but the Bible reapplies that principle in the New Testament. For instance, in the book of Romans, in the 12th chapter, verses 17 through 19, listen to these words that Paul wrote to the Romans. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. What David did that day was he allowed his case to be tried in the courts of heaven. And he refused to take action on behalf of God to whom he had submitted himself for all that was before him. He had decided, as we shall see in a few moments, that he would let God be the one to judge. I have a proverb for principle number one. It's one that just basically says what the principle says. It's Proverbs twenty four twenty nine, And here's what the proverb says. Say not... I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. The proverb says, don't say that. And more than that, don't do it. If the truth is this, that vengeance is God's and he will repay, when you get involved in revenge, you're trying to do God's job and my friend, you don't qualify. You can't do it. So principle number one from 1 Samuel 24 is refuse revenge. Number two, principle number two, risk reconciliation. Risk it. And I want to say from the outset that if you have a problem with a brother or even with somebody who is not a brother, if you have a problem and you have in your heart even the thought of reconciliation, there is risk involved every step of the way. And that's why more people don't do it. That's why more people don't reach out to try to restore broken relationships because of the risk. And what are the risks? The risks are it may not work. The risks are that your endeavor to restore the relationship might be cast back in your face. The risks are that you might say the wrong thing and make the problem worse. The risks are that you might be wrong in your analysis of the nature of the problem. There are all kinds of risks. So when David determined to try to get things right with Saul the best that he could, he risked things, at least two things that I'm aware of from this passage. Number one, he risked the ridicule of his own men. He risked the ridicule of his own men. Notice what it says in the fifth verse. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said to his men, got his men around him, and he said to them, God forbid that I should do this thing unto my master. He's the Lord's anointed. I should not stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And then the Bible says that David stayed. One of the references in the margin says he restrained. The word literally means David tore apart. So David tore apart his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. In other words, David had an argument with his own men over this. Their counsel was clear. Kill Saul. Do it now. You've got this chance. David said, no, I can't do it. It would be wrong. I would violate a principle that I should not touch the Lord's anointed, and I cannot. What was David risking? Oh, you know it well, don't you? David, you've lost your nerve. You've lost your courage. Here you have this man who's your enemy. You know he's your enemy. He's right in your hand, and you haven't got the guts to deal with it. David, you're getting weak. I can't believe, David, you're the same one that stood out there in the valley between the Philistines and the Israelites all by yourself and took out Goliath with just one little slingshot. I can't believe you've won all these battles with the Philistines. You've slain your ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And Saul is your enemy. You're going to replace him. You've got him in the palm of your hand and you won't deal with it. David, you have gotten weak because you won't deal with the problems. David said, no. You are never weak when you are standing upon the principles of the word of God. And David would not be swayed even by his own men to take what they consider to be the strong action, for in David's heart and mind, he knew that the strong action was to do what God wanted him to do. And so he was able by his own righteousness and commitment to this truth to bring those men along with him. His courage caused those men to agree and they did not lift their hand against Saul. And David was able to stay the hand against the king because of his courage. But I want to tell you something, when he risked reconciliation, he risked the ridicule of his own men. It's surprising to me how often when we try to be peacemakers, people view that as weakness. When we try to take the road of reconciliation instead of strong confrontation, people view that as a a weak approach, and it never is. David risked the ridicule of his men, but I want you to note, secondly, that David risked the retaliation of Saul. Verses 8 through 15, we are told what happens. David goes out to meet Saul He does it on his own, and we wonder what he is doing. He knows he has been hunted by 3,000 men, but notice what happens. Saul leaves the cave, and David arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth, and he bowed himself down before the king. Wow.
2: You know, the, the visualization of that as you read it is just amazing. I keep thinking to myself, this should be a movie, know, this is unbelievable, this story. And uh, David is such a, an illustration to us of life as it really is. He's not perfect by any means. He made some very, very bad mistakes in his life. He recovered to become a man God used and continues to use in our life every day. Every time we pick up the Psalms, we're blessed by David. And uh, his life is a testimony to what happens when your heart is filled with God's love. I wish we didn't have to interrupt this particular story with the weekend, but we do. We'll be back Monday with Part 2 of How to Treat Your Enemy. Next week, we're going to talk about David and Abigail, and then we'll visit David in a time of deep depression. I hope you'll be with us then. And don't forget, it's still possible for you to order The Focus Life, which is this beautiful edition of Psalms and Proverbs. 432 pages in a beautiful leather cover, and it's yours for a gift of any amount to Turning Point. When you ask for this resource, we'll send it to you right away. Friends, have a great weekend. Be sure to get to church. We'll see you here on Monday with the next edition of Turning Point.
1: For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Tender Warrior, please visit our website, There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of The Focus Life, a month of daily readings from Psalms and Proverbs in a beautiful leather-bound book. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, The Tender Warrior, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Do you ever
0: wonder if we're living in the end times? In Dr. Jeremiah's book, Where Do We Go From Here? He examines what Bible prophecy reveals about 10 phenomena happening in our world today. Order your copy this month, and if you give $75 or more, you'll also receive Dr. Jeremiah's entire teaching series on CD or DVD, correlating study guide and his interview special on DVD. Order now at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca.
2: When a college student was unhappy with the dealership where she bought a car recently, she complained to the Florida DMV. The government agreed she had been treated unfairly and required the dealer to refund nearly $400. The dealer complied by giving the student two large bags of loose change, mostly pennies, and some dollar bills. Did the dealer comply with the letter of the law? Yes, he refunded the money. But what about the spirit of the law complying with cheerfulness and humility? Jesus made a point of saying that the spirit of the law is just as important as the letter. And this is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's way to obey on Route 66.
0: Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.